So today, we find ourselves in another song in Luke's narrative of the birth of Christ. So you have picked up on our Advent theme by now. It's songs. And uh, Luke, obviously the author of the Gospel, is writing to his friend Theophilus, who uh, there are several theories about who Theophilus was. I think probably he was a Gentile convert, like Luke himself was, and they were studying Christianity. They were studying the story of uh, Jesus to see if, if, if they believed it. And so, sorry, I got off my notes already. <laughs> I'm going to skip down. Uh, so Luke wants to prove to Theophilus that what he learned about Jesus is in fact true. And uh, Luke begins to write to Theophilus the outcome of his investigation into the life of Christ, beginning with his birth. And he includes songs by several of the main and secondary characters in the birth narrative. Today we're going to look at Mary's. And by the way, Luke isn't the only biblical author that uses songs. Songs are prevalent all throughout scripture from the beginning to the end. There are whole books dedicated to songs. And it seems as though when God gives a song to someone, it's because he's doing or has done something very important, something redemptive, something special. And I love that. I think it's so fitting that we continue to worship each Sunday with songs to the Lord. So I want to start by asking you a question. How great are we all at memorizing scripture? And you don't have to raise your hand. If you are not like me, you are great at memorizing scripture. In our modern times, we are exceedingly blessed to have Bibles available to us in all sorts of translations, on our tablets, our phones. We can buy them. We can probably pick them up for free a lot of places. We have blogs, podcasts, seminaries, books. And I think it maybe tends to create less urgency to actually spend time memorizing scripture. Because we have all these resources available to us. But this has not been the case for most of human history. Most of human history, if lay people in the church wanted to have the word of God, they needed to keep it in their heart. And that's what Mary did. This would have been the habit of all devout Jews, both women and men. So Mary's song reflects her deep knowledge of scripture, which would have been what we call now just the Old Testament. A meditation on this particular passage on the Magnificat that I read states, being a young woman, she probably loved the stories of Old Testament women of faith, like Sarah, Deborah, Hannah, Ruth, and Abigail. What an admonition to us all, both women and men, young and old, to steep our minds and hearts in the scripture day and night so that the words and thoughts of scripture fill our mouths as naturally as they did Mary's. Mary's song is a reflection, though limited in complete understanding because of her space in history and of the promises that were yet to be fulfilled, but it's a reflection of God's promise to her people to rescue them and her rejoicing that the time had finally come. Her response is humble and beautiful. It takes the promises and blessings of God and returns to him the glory. Mary's song is a melodic example of a right response to God's blessings. 
even when the circumstances surrounding those blessings would have been difficult. And so in the immediate context of, her, of Mary's song, she's, she sings in the presence of her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, just six months prior, received his own angelic visitor, announcing the forthcoming conception of his son, who would be called John. After Mary's visit from Gabriel, in which her response contrasts that of Zechariah, because she was obedient and didn't doubt God. So her response after Gabriel visits her is that she visits Elizabeth. They are both pregnant with miraculous babies. I love that when Mary approaches Elizabeth, the first person to acknowledge the presence of baby Jesus is baby John in the womb. It's remarkable to see throughout the entirety of the Bible how God works so powerfully through those who have been marginalized, who would have been marginalized in ancient societies. And so this is an aside. I mean, it's a forethought aside. I wrote it in, but it's, it's a little bit of an aside. But I have to say, and I lost my place, that there is no more compelling source than the Bible to support the inherent dignity and worth of women and children. And I want to say that because we're often told otherwise, that Christianity is oppressive to women. And I think we often believe it. But the truth is that God has always elevated the status of women and children, and oftentimes in his word uses the most unexpected people, societally speaking, to accomplish his great work. Though the church has not always modeled this well, oftentimes pretty horribly, we can say without hesitation that God values the lowly and the marginalized and gives them a seat of honor at the table. Look at what he's just done for Mary. Look at what Jesus said about the children. And you can look that up in Matthew 18, 1 through 6, and 19, 13 through 15. I could speak to the role Christianity has played throughout history to secure the dignity, equality, and position of women and children in society for another hour or more, but that will be for another time. Suffice it to say that we see the value and importance and honor of women in the Bible narrative from the first pages to the last, and this is in stark contrast to the way surrounding cultures would have seen women and children. So here we are in the middle of a story that is one of the most, the whole story being one of the most pivotal points in biblical and world history. And the only two pres people present right now, or the only people present right now, are two women and two unborn babies. It's absolutely amazing. John leaps in his mother's womb at the recognition that the one for whom he is born to tell is present. And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and humbly, but I'm sure ecstatically asks, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord shall come to me? Can you imagine the, emo the emotional isolation both of these women must have felt in their joyous but unconventional pregnancies? Imagine the small town talk. Mary being unwed and claiming that she was miraculously impregnated by the Holy Spirit? I mean, we wouldn't believe that if somebody told that to us now. And Elizabeth, who's postmenopausal and pregnant and now has a mute husband to show for it? 
I think God's goodness and compassion is shown in his arranging for these two women to have a visit with each other. Who else could really understand their position and share in their joy on a deeply empathetic level? Who else could with 100% certainty affirm the miraculous events of the other and only because she had also experienced these same miracles? Only Elizabeth, who is old and barren, but somehow pregnant, can truly share in Mary's joy in her miraculous state. And only Mary, who has also been visited by the angel Gabriel, can with certainty affirm the angelic visitor from God who correctly pronounced Elizabeth's wildly unexpected news. And how affirming it would have been for Gabriel to tell Mary of her cousin's pregnancy and then send Mary along her way to confirm the facts for herself. I think God is so good. He knows we're weak. He knows we have trouble believing things. How wonderful it must have been for these two women to spend that special time together, praising God for his goodness to them and through them to the whole world. The Bible says Mary stayed for three months, so she must have been there for the birth of John. I think about how much God cared for Mary, that he would send her to a place where she would not be ostracized or doubted or mocked for her condition, like she might have been by everybody else. So, that was a long context setup, but here we are. Mary has just had all of this wonderful news confirmed for her. She's in her cousin's home, which would have been a safe place for her, one where Elizabeth and Zechariah had no problem believing that she was a pregnant virgin, and she sings a song of worship to God in response. Mary's song, the Magnificat, is a song of deliverance and rejoicing, of praise to the Mighty One of Israel. The themes are deeply drawn from her knowledge of her Hebrew Bible and her expectation that God would fulfill the promise made to her people. Though Luke, unlike Matthew, doesn't quote specific Hebrew Bible passages, we can see the thematic cohesion in passages like we read earlier, in Hannah's song, in the Psalms, in the story of the Exodus, in Isaiah and the prophets. I mean, the whole Old Testament is telling of this story. And Mary knew her Bible. And not only that, she personally knew the God of the Bible. She knew him and believed that he was a trustworthy promise keeper. Mary becomes Israel in her song. The promises to God to send a savior to Israel are met and fulfilled now first in Mary and then to Israel and in turn to the whole world. Mary is favored by God. She's his servant, his handmaid, and he looks down on her humble state and she chooses her above everyone else for a position of supreme honor. Elizabeth, as well as her near future contemporary Jewish hearers and readers of this passage, would hear in Mary's song a call back to Hannah's song, which we read earlier. Hannah, another woman honored by God in her barrenness, births, gives birth to a son who would inform the course of Israel's history. A son who would anoint King David, the king whose lineage would bear the savior of the world. And she sings, my heart, and another quick aside, 
I'm a novice at this, so I, I didn't tell Matt again that I'm using a different translation from the one that's in the bulletin, so that my words are different than yours, but it's the same thing. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. In, in the Lord. She goes on to sing, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The two songs, in fact, mirror each other. Mary was likely drawing on her memory of Hannah's song and seeing herself in Hannah's story. The Bible truly is a unified story that leads to Jesus, as my favorite podcast reminds me every week. Mary sings, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Did God look with favor upon the humble state of Israel, who is weak among the nations? Isaiah 41.14 says, The Lord says, Small and weak are you, Israel. Don't be afraid. I will help you. I, the Holy God of Israel, am the one who saves you. The story of the Bible shows us over and over again that God, who is mighty and full of strength, is the one who looks down on his feeble, weak, sinful people and rescues them. God is the covenant keeper who repeatedly brings back the covenant breakers into his fold. Because they are his, we are his and we belong to him. Mary being chosen in her humility, just like God's choosing Israel above the nations, is a reflection of his character, not the merit of the one whom he chooses. We also benefit from this grace, that God looks upon us as helpless sinners, helpless in the sense that we cannot keep God's perfect law and therefore have brought eternal condemnation on ourselves. And yet God keeps his covenant to us and rescues us. And he doesn't rescue us, like in the capital R sense of the word, over and over and over again. Though it may feel that way sometimes when we sin over and over and over again. But he rescued us once and for all on the at the cross of Jesus. And friends, this is a truth you can hold on to when you sin greatly. Jesus paid for your sin, <clears throat> for that specific sin, 2,000 years ago. There is no sin you can commit that isn't covered by Jesus' atonement 2,000 years ago. Take it to the cross, lay it at Jesus' feet, and be forgiven. Bring it into the light. Confess it to God. Tell your spouse or your pastor, parent, trusted Christian friend. Sin cannot continue to live in the light because it only thrives in darkness. And there is forgiveness to be had and grace to be enjoyed, and it is available to you right now. Mary goes on to sing, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Do we call Mary blessed? I wonder if our Protestant heritage has downplayed this honor, which she is due. Our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, to be sure, make too much of it. They attribute to Mary the ability to bless, rather than to simply be the blessed one. 
Extra-biblically, they impose onto her a moral uniqueness that the Bible does not. Mary was not sinless. In fact, right in the Magnificat, in our passage in verse 47, she calls God her Savior. Sinless people don't need a Savior. She didn't remain a virgin, and there's no biblical basis for her bodily assumption into heaven. So Mary is not morally unique, but she is unique. And she was uniquely chosen by God, and is rightfully called blessed. She is, after all, Theotokos, the mother of God. No one else has or ever will have that honor. She rightly claims that because of what God did for her, a lowly and young, unwed Jewish woman, that she will be blessed and honored among all generations. We can be thankful to God for her obedience, for her devotion to and motherly care for our Lord Jesus. We can look to her as a shining example of what it looks like to fully trust God in all of our circumstances both joyous, like in this moment, and sorrowful. After all, she experienced sorrow like that of every mother's most horrifying nightmare. When she watched her firstborn son experience a torturous death at the hands of both the Roman soldiers and her own people. So yes, what an honor belongs to Mary for being the one chosen by God to carry and raise our Lord. She is blessed among all generations. Mary sings, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Mary sings of how God looks upon the poor and the weak and through his strength upends the the conventions of our power structures. It is a great contrast and one unique to the Judeo-Christian God that he in his greatness and might does not seek the great and powerful to prop him up. Again from a meditation I read, this is a quote, Mary's words are a warning to Theophilus and to us not to make the common mistake that because God is great, he is partial to great men. Or because God is exalted, he favors what is exalted among men. Just the opposite is the case. God's holiness has expressed itself and will express itself. Sorry. By exalting the lowly and abasing the haughty. Friends, God's power structure is upside down. He is ushering in an upside down kingdom where, according to Jesus, the first will be last and the last will be first. This is incredible. It is a narrative we see played out over and over again in the Old Testament. And then when Jesus begins to make clear that this is still true during his lifetime, those who held religious power were not happy about it. It threatened their power. This is a God who, in order to save humanity from ourselves and from our enmity with the creator and ruler of the universe, sent a baby. A baby who would grow up to wash the feet of his disciples, 
who would dine with prostitutes and pardon adulterers, who would gather together a group of men whose pedigrees were not fancy, whose jobs didn't pay well, whose positions made them despised among their own people, like Matthew. And this ragtag group of mostly unimportant men were his closest friends. This baby would grow up to be spit on, flogged, and mocked. This baby would grow up to ultimately die for the sake of his people, of all people, rich and poor, black and white, men and women, strong and weak, Jew and Gentile. Mary finishes by singing that this is what God had always planned, that this was the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God wasn't surprised in Genesis at our need for a savior. And indeed, this very moment when Mary met Elizabeth and shared the good news was planned by our triune God in eternity past. The whole Hebrew Bible, which Mary knew so well, had been crescendoing to the moment when Christ Jesus, the babe now just in utero, would be born. To when the whole of creation would breathe a sigh of ecstatic relief, because God himself would be with us. Jesus, our Emmanuel, the one whom his cousin, John the Baptist, also still this moment in utero, would proclaim, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Amen. Amen.